This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome, everybody. Leadership in Action. This is Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Mike Yuseem. I'm the director of the Leadership Center here and faculty director for the McNulty Leadership Program. And I'm delighted to say that we're going to be talking with Cecilia Munoz, who was a member of President Obama's administration and who recently joined New America. It's a think tank and civic enterprise dedicated to public debate on issues important to America around technology, globalization, and beyond. And we need a lot of debate about all of the above. So, Cecilia, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Really great to have you. Let me just say a couple more words about you so our listeners have a better sense for uh, who's in dialogue here. Uh, Cecilia, as I said, is Vice President of Policy and Technology with the National Network at New America. Before this, she served in President Obama's White House, first as Director of Intergovernmental Affairs for three years, and then for five years as Director of the Domestic Policy Council. Prior to that, she worked for 20 years with the National Council La Raza. Uh, It's got a new name now, Unidos U.S., which is the nation's largest Hispanic policy and advocacy organization. In any case, Cecilia, wonderful to have you here, and we're going to get into a dialogue just about right now. So welcome. Thank you. So uh, the White House, let's let's appreciate what it means to be in the White House, uh, the the burden on you to indeed uh, advise and work with the president to lead the country. And maybe to make it very personal, just to get us uh, sort of into the uh, the moment, uh, walk us through security there <laughs> as you enter probably the West Wing directly. Yeah. You might have had an office either in the West Wing or maybe across a little alleyway there in the what used to be called the old executive office building. Now I think it's the Eisenhower building. So indeed. there you are. Probably before 9 a.m. on a given day. Oh, yeah. First meeting was at 7.30 uh, most of the years I was there. Medical school hours, huh? We started buying back our time about in 15-minute increments. By the very, very end, by the very last day, the 7.30 meeting was at like 9. But most of the time, it was quite early. I, my, yeah. uh, both For both jobs, I had offices on the second floor of the West Wing, which is an amazing thing to walk into that building every day. Say why. Well, it's, you know, it's... Um, I'm the daughter of immigrants. My parents come from a very poor country. My parents are Bolivians. And the notion that within a generation you can come from a country like that and have your child work for the President of the United States on his senior staff is extraordinary and unique to this place, I think. You had to pinch yourself once in a while. I had to pinch myself all the time. Um, So so coming in, I I drove. Uh, You have to go through three gates, one of which involves a dog sniffing your car. You have to turn off the car and open the trunk. Yeah. Um, and they let you through the first one, and there's a couple more that you have to go through. I was fortunate enough to have a parking space right outside the entrance to the West Wing. And um, you go in through the basement. It's sort of like a rabbit warren. It's a. It's not mm-hmm. nearly as glamorous as it looks on the TV shows that depict the West Wing. It's an old building. It's a little bit like a rabbit warren, but it's you know it's an extraordinary place to work every day. And the minute you walk in the door, there's energy crackling yeah. all the time. Even at seven thirty. Even at seven thirty in the morning, sometimes especially so. Um, having walked the West Wing with a mutual friend of ours, uh, one thing that caught my attention is that the art on the wall is fantastic, yeah. but the corridors are narrow. Yes, they are. <sighs> it's true, and the and the the art is fantastic. In fact, there's some. Um, a number of George Catlin paintings. He was a, uh, yep. someone who, I, I worked on Native American issues, and he was someone who was an observer and painter of Native Americans and their way of life in the 19th century. And I just got the shivers walking by those paintings every day because uh, he was painting a way of life that he knew was ending. Mm-hmm. And there it is being honored in, uh, in that particular workplace. And probably honored by a president of several decades ago. Does that go back to T.R. or somebody at the early part of the century? You know, I don't know who first put them up. I know they were up in the Clinton administration, and I think they've yeah. been up since. Uh, uh, not to get too far off into this, but much of the art in the White House has been contributed or, or presented there by former presidents. But, of course, every president customizes what yeah. he, he or maybe one day she would like to see. 
Uh, let's walk all the way into the Oval Office. What's mm-hmm. it like to walk through a, a fairly modest door, and there you are in an office that does have the shape of an oval? Yeah, well, it um, the first time you do it, um, it's is surreal and is a little terrifying. And the president, President Obama, took a lot of amusement out of everybody's reaction because, of course, he was in the Oval Office every day. Yeah. And everybody has a first time they walk in there, and they get you get a little tongue-tied. And he, of course, needs you to do your work. So he is pretty good at disarming people's discomfort when they walk in or yeah. their awe, sense of awe because he needs you to focus and buckle down and get, get used to it. I never did quite get used to it, although I did stop being tongue-tied after the first mm-hmm. few times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, an amazing space. It's an echoey space. So you can be sitting. He, the President Obama would sit in one of those chairs you see in the photos by the fireplace, by the mantle. Yeah. Uh, and there are two sofas. The sofas uh, that President Obama chose are for tall people, and I am not such a person. So I, I'm 5'2", so I used to scramble for a seat with the pillow behind it, or else I'd have to be perched on the edge of that sofa. Um, and then there are chairs near the Resolute desk. And if you're sitting on one of those chairs facing the president, the sound carries in a really interesting way. You can be speaking very softly and the acoustics are kind of amazing, which must have to do with the shape of the room. Yeah. But I remember noticing that a lot, that you could speak, you know, in a regular tone of voice in a room with a lot of people in it and, and be heard because of the way the sound carries in yep. that room. So, Cecilia, uh, many accounts of life in the Oval Office, some written by the presidents themselves. Mm-hmm. Great book. You probably know it by Chris Whipple on chiefs of staff mm-hmm. and how they dialogued with the president in the Oval Office. Yeah. I would imagine as you walk in there, maybe it's a domestic policy day or at least a couple hours there, and when you arrive, probably a little uh, banter, light talk, but then probably pretty quickly into serious conversation, what does the president want from you? He wants you to be concise. He wants you to present the information that he needs to make a good decision. If there is a disagreement about that decision, and usually something doesn't get to him unless there's a disagreement or unless it's a hard one, you... What he wants is clarity and a concise description of what does he need to know in order to make a good decision. And the, in some ways, the being able to do it concisely and being able to be a good, honest broker for the various points of view in the conversation is the most important thing that you can give to the president, as well as being able to correct him. If you get something wrong, which is not an easy thing to do with the leader of the free world. And just tell us why that's so. Well, because he needs to he, – he wants to get it right. Yeah. And he needs to get it right. And your job is to make sure that he can and to not be so in awe of the man or the office that you can't say, actually, Mr. President, that number is incorrect. The number that you yeah. need is this. Uh, President Obama was the kind of guy who, who wanted you to do that. Uh, was never uncomfortable with you doing that. And too frequently, he would apologize if he wasn't perfect. He would say, oh, wait, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm messing that up. And, you know, he would gather himself. And he didn't need to get corrected a lot. He had an amazing, amazing grasp and capture of a lot of information. But he needs you to, to be straight with him. And he needs to know... Um, and from somebody in a job like mine, there are several policy councils that serve the presidency. One is the Domestic Policy Council. One's the National Economic Council. And, of course, the National Security Council. Our jobs, the, count, the members of the council are members of the cabinet. And our job is to make sure the cabinet agencies are advancing the president's agenda, but also to surface the ideas and the issues and the decisions that are coming from the cabinet agencies. And where there is a – where we can make the decision together – and reach a consensus, that's great, but frequently the issues are challenging and we don't reach a consensus. And my job was to identify the areas of disagreement, describe them in a memo. The memos had to be brief because he gets he would get a lot of them every night. Um, and then if the decision needed to happen in a meeting, my job was to facilitate the meeting, right? So if we were in the Roosevelt Room, which is right across from the Oval Office, my job would be to sit across from the president and make sure we would have maybe an hour, make sure everybody had a chance to have their say, which is not easy, um, and make sure that every point of view was expressed, that everybody felt like they got a fair hearing, get all of that done in an hour so that he has all the information that he needs to make a decision. And I used to chart out those meetings by the minute, hmm. and I developed a little bit of a reputation of being relentless at 
telling people when they needed to stop talking because if I didn't ask Secretary so-and-so to stop so that another secretary could have their say, the president might not get all of the information that he needed. Or you might have a secretary walking out of there feeling like they their point of view was not heard. Because what you need is for them to, if they felt heard, even if they didn't win the argument in the day and he, he made a decision that was not consistent with their point of view, they needed to own and execute on that decision. And it was easier for a member of the president's cabinet to do that if they felt like, you know what, I got a fair hearing. I mm-hmm. said my say. Here's the decision. And now we are one team. We're going to move forward. Cecilia, this is great. Let's take an example. My guess is, just to pick a topic out of the blue here, that you had something to do with the Affordable Care Act that might have been in that Roosevelt Room discussion more than once. And without necessarily getting into particulars, Mm -hmm. whatever you'd uh, feel free here to to talk through, just help us understand what it feels like at maybe 8.05 a.m., a couple cabinet secretaries in the room, probably a couple assistant secretaries, a few others. Uh, how does the meeting open? What's your role in it? And by the way, to add a third question, what can go wrong? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll um, use public health as an example just because in the Obama White House there was a specific team assigned to the Affordable Care Act that was led mm-hmm. very ably by Nancy Anderparl, who went on to become the Deputy Chief of Staff. So I don't want to suggest that I did what, in fact, she did mm-hmm. um, in this particular case. But uh, public health issues, I managed labor issues, education issues. What it's like is there you, um, you know, the one thing that was really a hallmark that I'm really proud of of the way we conducted ourselves is that it was very, very collegial. So even if you had two cabinet members who vehemently disagreed with each other, they liked each other and respected mm-hmm. each other. And, and so it was always cordial, um, at least in my experience, and always with a team spirit, which I think is tremendously important when you're dealing with hard things. Um, so you walk into the room. Everybody has a place. We, we would plan the meeting out in advance so it was clear where everybody was going to sit um, uh, so that the president could see everybody who needed to speak. There's usually, right, there's a thing around who's at the table and then who's in the rows of chairs behind the table. Um, in a big meeting, it could be hard to get everybody uh, at the table. So it's important to choose the room where everybody can be seen and heard and feel like they've had their say. Um, and the president gets a memo in advance of that. So he would get a book every evening with preparation for the next day. So there could be you know, a lot of memos in that book, some, some having to do with whatever his meetings and events were that day, some teeing up decisions just on paper that, they, that we needed him to make. So he would have read it and digested the information, and man, is that an amazing thing because he, you know, that's a lot of information to digest on each topic area. But um, he was always well prepared for those meetings, uh, every Mm. single one that I ever attended. And I knew I only saw a fraction of his day. Um, And generally, you know what the the people in the room are going to want to say because there's been a lot of process leading to that point. So there are kind of layers of process. You have folks within the agency who have been working through an issue. You have deputies um, who have teed up decisions and done a lot of the kind of hard substantive work. They tee up when if they if the deputies can't reach a decision, they tee up the matters to principals, which is the members of the cabinet and people like myself. So we would have principal meetings to argue to debate to make decisions or to tee up decisions for the president's to for the president and the really only the ones that were either so important that it was important to validate for him to validate the recommendation of his team or um places where his team didn't agree uh well, those were the decisions that mm-hmm. that would result in a either a memo to him that he and he would make a decision on paper or a meeting where he where he needed to be part of the discussion. And part of my job was to decide which was which. Yep. So, see, a couple of questions around this particular dialogue, the moment you just uh, so well described. I feel like I'm in the Roosevelt room with you right now. Uh, we know from business settings that senior managers, sometimes even chief executive officers, uh, many become very good at eliciting information from below. It's mm-hmm. not natural for information to flow up, especially if it's not good, if mm-hmm. it's bad. And there's an art on the part of the president, in this case, I assume, to eliciting what should be said, but people may be reluctant to say. 
in your own experience there, uh, to what extent did that happen? And the second part of my question really is to you. Were you in the habit of coaching people when they came into the Roosevelt Room for one of these meetings to be frank and direct if they could? Yeah. So the president, President Obama, um, is a really considerate and thoughtful boss. So in addition, you're right that he's, as a CEO, he's very good at eliciting information from his team. But he was also observant about, so, you know, some people are pretty are pretty good at filling up a room and dominating a conversation and some people hold back Mm -hmm. he knew who his holders back were and he would go out of his way to call on them to make sure like you know what you haven't spoken and what do you think he was very good at that he didn't let people be wallflowers no shrinking violence no shrinking violence um and he knew knew his team well enough to have a sense of where folks were likely to be and it was important to him to kind of get every point of view out there uh to and to make sure that he had heard them all. Yep. Um, we got better at being able to surface difficult information. We learned a lot, frankly, from the fiasco of the Affordable Care Act website failing um, because one of the problems had been not at the president's level but further into the Department of Health and Human Services that the information that the secretary would have needed to surface that there was a problem just didn't filter mm. up because people, contractors and others, didn't want to um, surface bad news. And we, so we learned a lot from that and actually went out of our way. And the president went out of his way to kind of make sure that we made changes so that the kind of information could surface because mm-hmm. you need it in order to make good decisions. By the way, we've had a person on the program who now serves as a chief executive officer of a very large company. He came up from the front line. So he at one point managed nobody. Now he manages more than 100,000. And he, to this very point, said two things about the higher he rose, number one, the funnier his jokes became, and number two, the better the news became as yeah. well. So, uh, Cecilia, let me just uh, remind our listeners, you are listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host, Mike Yusim. I'm speaking with Cecilia Munoz, Vice President of Policy and Technology and Director of the National Network of uh, New America. And we're talking about a, a prior uh, stint that she had, a full eight years in the U.S. White House. So, so let me ask you about your experience there. If somebody turned to you, I'm going to do that right now, and said, from your experience witnessing those kinds of dialogues, information coming up, drawing everybody into offering their thinking, even if they're a little bit on the quiet side, and you're speaking to uh, the manager of a small team, maybe a person running a division in a mm-hmm. hospital, could be a community group. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for them in light of your experience in the Roosevelt Room there? Don't be afraid of disagreement or conflict. In fact, conflict turns out to be tremendously important to getting to good decisions. Um, I, I, that's, I feel like I learned that lesson in a big way mm-hmm. during my time at the White House, that um, in some ways... When you're struggling with big challenges or when there are significant conflicts, hard issues where there is big disagreement about what the right thing is to do, um, that can drive actually some of the best and most creative decision-making that you, yeah. that you make. Um, but if you, are, if you think your job is to present a united front at all costs, you miss things, important things. Um, but it, boy, does it matter for the folks at the top to invite people to disagree Um, but also to model the behavior which uh, also sets an expectation that they will disagree without being disagreeable. Both of those things were true. And and both of those things became more true. We got better at this over the course of the eight years, and I'm lucky that I'm one of the people who was able to see it develop. Mm -hmm. Under successive chiefs of staff, I served under five of them. And uh, the the last chief of, chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, who was also there all eight years, was able to kind of learn from the experiences of his predecessors and and build on them. And um, so he he got that it was important for conflicts to get aired, and he also got that it was important for them to be aired respectfully. Yep, so nicely said. Some leadership skills are just natural, but most of them are learned. Yeah. And uh, they're only learned through hard work, some feedback, a few stub toes, and some good feedback on that. Did you coach anybody in the cabinet or their subordinates before they walked in on 
the president's style, what he wants, don't be shy, all that kind of thing? I didn't do much coaching for the cabinet. Occasionally, a new cabinet member I would give suggestions to if they if this was they were going into a yeah. first meeting. But President Obama's cabinet was pretty sharp and didn't need yeah. they didn't need coaching from me. I learned a lot from them. Um, but sometimes there would be people on my staff or on their staffs who were the substance experts who really had a lot of knowledge. And the most frequent thing I would suggest was to say, you know, he doesn't – they would be eager. These would be people who are experts on housing or whatever it was. And they wanted him to know everything that they know, which is not possible. And so the coaching I would frequently give would be to say, you know, you that your job here isn't to demonstrate how knowledgeable you are. There's, You'll find – you'll discover that he read the memo and he knows a lot. Mm-hmm. You need to pick out the points that are going to be most useful for him to make in making this decision. And helping people be – concise um, is hard. And they have the same experience that I had the first time walking into the Oval Office. If it's your first meeting with the president, it's a little dazzling. But he needs you to focus on the work. Um, and so steering people away from the tendency to to um, want to convey everything they know to to boiling it down to what he yep. needs to know to make a good decision, is is that came up frequently. Yep. A couple of years ago, I profiled the president of another country, and he said in half a dozen different ways a huge job he had taken on was not only obviously to spend a lot of time with his 22 members of his cabinet, but to follow up with them when they had committed to achieving X or Y. He had a very tough policy of following up. So was that anywhere in your wheelhouse? Oh, yeah. And how does that work? How, what, what does that look like? So no meeting ended without um, what what Dennis McDonough would call do-outs. Mm-hmm. And we had debates over whether that was spelled D-O or D-U-E. <laughs> and what, what was the answer? D-U-E. Um, but so that it's important to, when a decision is made, to execute on it. Yeah. And that was my job and, or, and the agency's jobs. And it was it's really important that it be clear... What are the assignments? Who is responsible for them? And by when are they responsible? And a big part of my job was making sure we met those deadlines. So to give you an example, um, the president asked us to set up a task force on community, on policing. He wanted it set up quickly, and he wanted them to report out quickly, and he didn't want flowery you know, language. He wanted actionable results. He wanted results-oriented recommendations. Um and so we had clear marching orders from the president. We made those marching orders clear to the task force. We set clear deadlines. And then you work backwards from those deadlines in order to make sure that you set up a process to meet them. Um, so, yes, uh, do-outs, clear assignments, clear dates, and making sure that if a body like that makes recommendations, yeah. that they're actually acted upon is important. You're the enforcer? Well, in in a sense, yes, the White House is part of our job is to make sure that the agencies carry out what the president has asked them to do. Totally. And just to think about that in a very tangible way, everybody struggles with this. Decision is made, memo says you're going to do X, Y, and Z, and three weeks later, it's still not done. Yeah. And so just if you could maybe even take an example and play that out. So commitment is made, whatever it might be, just pick one of those do-outs and take it forward when things didn't go so well. So you name a – so, you know, you will produce a recommendation on topic X, you know, within two weeks. And then the next thing you do is you get the next meeting on the calendar so that they know, you know what, when I show up at that meeting, I'd better have a recommendation. Um, so it, there's a little bit of managing management by meetings that goes on yeah. so that people understand th- this is my assignment and I'm going to be reporting out on the, that assignment at this meeting in the situation room or in the Roosevelt room. And when you're in that situation, it's pretty hard for a member of the cabinet to say we're not ready. Yeah. And yeah. the cabinet member can use that to frankly say to their team, look, we are due back at the White House with a recommendation, you don't get to stall because sometimes what happens mm-hmm. is that, you know, the folks in the agencies, particularly career staff, who are frequently amazing, dedicated public servants, also have some capacity to slow things down that the political appointees want them to do. Um, and they really hold the wheels, right? If you're mm-hmm. if a cabinet member is expected to come out with a product 
they have to rely on their teams to produce that product. And if the team is unwilling, it, they, it, there are lots and lots and lots of ways to stall. Um, but giving the cabinet member the capacity to basically say, we are due at the White House. And by the way, maybe you're coming with me and yep. you'll present yep. um, is a useful way to, to get to the outcome. And as we think about the rollout of affordable care, a bit of the history as things were happening, but not carefully tracked such that some problems were not detected mm-hmm. until the the website in particular turned mm-hmm. out to be subpar. And are there methods, again, this is the nitty-gritty of, of managing from the White House or from any high perch, were there intermediate checkpoints? So they're coming back to the White House in three weeks, but five days out, you place a call or something to that effect? Well, when that crisis happened, we were having we were having daily meetings to, you were. to get it fixed. But hmm. but there had been plenty of checks. This is this is why it was such a stunning development that the website failed completely because we had had uh, plenty of checkpoints to the to the start of the open enrollment period and we were getting reports that everything was fine and that it was going to be great and so we were as surprised as anybody when it wasn't great and one of um, so you know reliving that is is <laughs> painful because that was among the hardest periods that that we lived through at the white house but it also is a source of pride that one of the things we did was learn big big lessons from that experience mm. so we did a you know kind of postmortem once the thing was fixed. We did a postmortem on like what the heck happened and what did we learn from this. And uh, among the things we learned um, was that you know government is not good at big systems like this. Big systems which people in places like the Silicon Valley run every day all the time. The engineer, his name is Mikey Dickerson. He is amazing. Um, who we sort of he had worked on the president's campaign and we kind of convinced him to come back from Google where he was working to come fix the website. And Mikey's um, assessment was we didn't actually have, it wasn't really an engineering problem. He said, you know, you don't, I don't have like special magical powers or skills Mm -hmm. that were required to get this fixed. You you didn't have an engineering problem. You had a management problem. Uh, People, there was not one room where people who were responsible for different elements of this big complex thing were working together and could see a dashboard of how things were and weren't coming together. So what he brought was actually management practices more than engineering hmm. talent to the job. And at the res- as a result of that, we created a whole structure called the U.S. Digital Service. Um, we recruited hundreds of people of talented, talented people from the Silicon Valley to come do two-year tours of duty, sort of Peace Corps style, in the federal government. Hmm. Uh, Mikey Dickerson ended up leading the U.S. Digital Service, and the results of that were really extraordinary and transformative for how the federal agencies operate, particularly with respect to with respect to using technology. Cecilia, hold that thought. I'd like to come back and hear more about uh, this particular experience because it does speak to the power of setbacks to make things going forward all that much better. I'd like to get uh, again additional feel for how that worked, but in the meantime. I want everybody to stay with us. We're going to take a brief break here. We're talking with Cecilia Munoz. I'm Mike Hussein, and you're listening to Leadership in Action here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, You are listening to Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Hussein, director of the center here at the Wharton School for Leadership and Change. And we've been in discussion with Cecilia Munoz, who had an eight-year stint, I guess I'll put it that way, in the White House, working on domestic policy. And now she's with what is called New America, a think tank dedicated to uh, improving public debate on issues, including technology, globalization, and the like in this country. So, Cecilia, before we turn to New America, I've got a couple final questions on your your time in the White House. And staying with the topic we referenced just before the break, uh, with setback, it is often said, certainly in business, that there's no better opportunity to reexamine what you have done. Uh, The armed forces have long used the the term an after-action review. It sounds like you did quite a bit of that there. Just give us a feel for how that worked. 
Yeah, it was again very important that it um, that the kind of instruction to do it and the energy around doing it come from the very top. The president really wanted to know what went wrong and what did it say about what government mm-hmm. can and can't do well, um, and to take action as a result of that, which we did. It, and, and we ended up creating something which was tremendously impactful as a result, and which is still reaping benefits for the American people. Mm-hmm. Terrific. So, Cecilia, we appreciate your eight years of public service on Thank behalf you. of the country. I'm going to just take a back, take us back a few years, and then we'll come into your present. Uh, you indicated at the outset that uh, you come from your parents came from Bolivia. Mm-hmm. How in the world did you end up at the University of Michigan and Arbor, <laughs> Michigan? My grandfather was a proud graduate of the University of Michigan. He came as a foreign student in the he graduated around 1920. He sent all of his sons, one of whom was my dad who came on a boat and was at the, in Ann Arbor during the Second World War. Uh, he went back to Bolivia and married my mom and brought her back because she, he, hadn't, he needed one more credit to finish. He hadn't huh. graduated. And they ended up, things were very difficult in Bolivia at the time that they came, and they ended up staying, which is why I am a Michigan girl. I'm the youngest of four, born in Michigan, and two of us went to Michigan and sent uh, of the my parents' six grandchildren, three are Michigan grads. Awesome. And is this when we say something like go blue? Big time. Okay, very good. As you finished up your years there, you were probably in what Michigan calls its uh, literature, science, and arts school. I was LSNA, indeed. You mm-hmm. were a liberal arts major. Yep. What field, can I ask? I double majored in English and Latin American studies. And how did how did you get into a career in public service? You know... It's a completely unconventional path, to be honest. Um, I, I'm from an immigrant family. I went. I did my graduate work at UC Berkeley and volunteered for a legal services mm. program serving immigrants while I was there. And I uh, be, ended up becoming an expert in immigration policy, but by by engaging in organizations that were providing services. I thought I was destined for a career in sort of public service at the NGO, serving people one at a time kind of level. Discovered I wasn't very good at that, but in the course of that, discovered my policy chops and my voice as an advocate, and I ended up uh, at the what was then called the National Council mm-hmm. of La Raza as an immigration policy expert, developed expertise in other policy areas, and that's the expertise that I ended up bringing to the White House. Yep. Uh, so you've had... The calling, maybe not in college, but after college, you began gradually to get to the calling, public service, national service. Uh, taking that forward now, you're with what's called New America, as mm-hmm. I mentioned, a think tank, a civic enterprise that focuses on public debate. Heaven knows we need good, open public debate. Indeed. So how do you go about simulating Great dialogue on globalization, technology, and a few other very contentious issues. Well, we're do- I'm doing really two big things there. Um, so New America describes itself as a think tank. And think tanks typically, in, in Washington, there are hundreds of them, bring together thinkers and policymakers and kind of drive a policy debate forward, mm-hmm. hopefully based on research and hopefully based on kind of connection to communities. But it's a model that's about a century old. And my boss, her name is Anne-Marie Slaughter, is, among many other things, a network theorist. And she believes, and rightly so, that some of the best innovations happening around the country are happening locally. And, and And there are people all around the country that are doing incredible things to transform their communities every day. But those transformations, those innovations are not visible. They're not scaled. They're not circulated. They're not moving around. They're not finding their way into the policy process. And so... We are becoming a think tank which is locally focused. Uh, that's what the national network is that I'm helping build, is a network of innovators who are mm-hmm. transforming their communities to, and to make sure that, that that good work gets scaled, gets moved around the country. So that's a big piece of my work. And then the other thing I'm doing is replicating this, the U.S. digital service that I described. I'm convinced that the NGO world that I come from needs the same kind of capacity that we brought into government, that technologists are, and technology is transforming everything about the way we live and work, and that the way that we in, uh, engage in social change and provide services to people and advocate to advance our communities also needs to change. They need that we need that kind of tech capacity to be available in the NGO world, for example, and in government. 
So, Cecilia, here's the really tough challenge I think you face. When you are in the White House and a cabinet member leaves with a get-done list, there is the power of, of your office representing the president to follow up uh, and, in effect, make things happen through the authority of a formal office. Mm-hmm. We do use a phrase, I think we all know what it means, thought leadership. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of in the business here of thought leadership. Yeah. And what that signifies is that we are changing minds with no no carrots, no sticks. Uh, so what does it take to help people evolve their thinking when you have no authority over them, no yeah. way to push them, no way to fire them? Yeah, it's a. Um, it requires the power of ideas. That you, it helps a lot to be enthusiastic and in love with the idea that you're trying to sell. And in my case, I'm trying to convince, for example, technologists to work in public service. Um, we were successful in doing that in government, not because we had any power over these folks. We were convincing people to take mm-hmm. huge pay cuts and move across the country to co- go work at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Their incentive to do that was that they cared about the mission. They were interested in using their talents to help transform the way that the United States provides services to its veterans. That is an incredibly inspiring thing. So inspiration turns out to be important, and examples of what's possible turn out to be tremendously important. Offer up an example. So one of my colleagues at New America, she's a fellow at New America, her name is Marina Martin, is actually that person who we convinced to, to come across the country and leave a lucrative job in technology to work at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And when she got there, they didn't really know what she could do. She didn't have the resources to so much as buy a whiteboard for her wall. But she noticed that the way the VA works is they move big green folders full of papers around the country, right? Those are the veterans' files seeking benefits, seeking medical care and other things. Those files get frequently Mm. lost. It's an antiquated system. She barcoded it, which is not rocket science. It's a relatively simple thing. But she developed a procedure to help them just keep track of their files, and then they discovered what she was capable of and gave her the authority to make much bigger transformations. Excellent. Uh, Proof by... Dramatic example, to say the least there. And on the flip side of that, when people see up close somebody who indeed is transformative in ways that are interesting, surprising even, Mm -hmm. there's another challenge uh, uh, of bringing the grassroots to the attention of the grassroots across the country. So Mm -hmm. maybe what you saw in California, uh, if we don't have friends in a particular, say, innovative NGO action in the Mm -hmm. Sacramento Valley there, uh, how do you help people in Rhode Island yeah. learn about what's going on out there? Great ideas, but they'll never they'll never see it. They'll never know anybody in it. So some of that is about um, being deliberate about building networks so that people are actually yeah. talking to each other, which is which is one of the things that we're trying to do. Another is working to make those kind of innovations visible. So to give you an example, New America has a California office, and we have fellows. California-focused fellows. These are local innovators who are doing extraordinary things. One of last year's class of fellows is a gentleman by the name of Eric Glue who developed a system for uh, for police agencies to use um, to show their data on uses of force and other um, really important indicators of of whether or not they're behaving appropriately, whether or not they're effective. His we helped him develop a media plan. We helped him by, you know, creating opportunities for him to, to sh- kind of show this system and, and get it out there. It's now being used in 800 communities across the state mm. of California. Um, and he has an important voice on the, the debate over police tactics nationally. So some of it is about identifying great innovations and lifting them up, making them visible. Some of it is about creating networks so that those ideas can move around the country. Yep. Terrific. Going to have a uh, just a, a quick moment's pause here. This is Leadership in Action, everybody. You're on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host, Mike Yusim. I'm talking with Cecilia Munoz, Vice President of Policy and Technology uh, and Director of the National Network at New America. Cecilia, uh, just to stay on that for a minute more, then I've got a couple final, more personal questions for you here. In sort of in, in a broader scheme of things, I hear um, an implicit theme of optimism, that uh, taking these actions, building these networks, getting ideas from the grassroots elsewhere 
to the grassroots, uh, there's good reason to be hopeful. Yeah. And, and why is that? What? So this is a country full of extraordinary people and, and a country unlike any other country on earth in our diversity, um, in our founding principles. And we have the capacity to remake ourselves. We've done it over and over and over again. Um, I, I get that optimism to a certain degree from President Obama. He never mm-hmm. lost it. Um, and, you know, you, you go through a lot in an office like that, and he certainly did. But he never lost his faith in the American people and what we're capable of. And I, I feel the same way. Um, we, we're doing extraordinary things all the time, but, but we don't always see it. We don't necessarily mm-hmm. see what we're capable of. And part of what I learned in my time in government and what I'm dedicating myself to now is making sure that, that we do the most that we can with the innovations that our own people are, mm-hmm. are engaging in to make their neighborhoods better, to make their communities better. Cecilia, when you were growing up in Detroit, did you ever imagine you would be doing what you're doing now? No, not in a million years. It certainly never occurred to me that I would work in the White House, ever. Um, I'm incredibly fortunate. Yeah. And now thinking about that 20-year-old sophomore, or maybe, well, probably a sophomore, maybe a junior at the University of Michigan, or the equivalent around the country, I think we've got some 2,500 colleges and universities, whether you're an engineering major, a history major, um, whatever, nursing, whatever it is, what advice would you have for a person who's not quite certain where specifically they want to go, but on hearing your own account, your own story, they would like to find a place for them mm-hmm. to work with a, a mission, to, to attach themselves to something that yeah. is bigger than they are. What, what's your advice? You know, I came an awfully long way just by by pursuing what I was in love with. It wasn't particularly practical. I remember the questions about an English major. What on earth are you going to do with that? What I do with that is that I I think critically and I write well and I can speak relatively well. I got that from a good liberal arts education. Um, The advice that I give to young people, and I give a lot of it, is worry less about what credentials you're getting and Mm. and more about what is it that gets your blood moving, what that gets you up in the morning because you're excited about it. You're more likely to be successful and shine at what you do if you're if you love it. Yep. And that's that. And a, your university years are an extraordinary time to explore that. It's also a personal business in the sense that many people report that they stuck in a job even if it wasn't a great job because they loved their boss, or they quit a job because they did not like the boss. So yes, thinking back on your various bosses, naming no names whatsoever, who is the best and who is the less than best? I haven't had very many because I tend to stay in jobs for a long time, and I am really lucky that I choose my bosses really well, and I've gotten you know better and better at it over time. So I've had almost exclusively great ones, mm-hmm. uh, and it's pretty hard to argue that you know the president of the United States is you know not a great boss. He was pretty fabulous. Yeah. What did you learn from him? Um, I learned fearlessness. Um, I learned about integrity. Uh, I learned he he brings a lot of grace, to, not just to his work, but to the way that he lives his mm-hmm. life. Both President Obama and Mrs. Obama were bound and determined not to become different people as a result of this extraordinary journey that they're on. And uh, boy, do I have a lot of respect for that. Mm-hmm. So the, these are people who there is something very fundamental in their core that's about service, that's about decency, and... They, you could see them taking steps to replenish it and see them drawing from it in facing the challenges yep. they faced in those eight years. And I take great inspiration from that. I like your phrase a couple seconds ago, and that is you've chosen your boss as well. Yeah. That might be a metaphor, but was there actually some self-conscious decision on your part to go to work for somebody because you knew their style, their method? Yeah. Yeah, so I didn't at first. So when I went, for example, to the National Council of La Raza, I didn't know at the time the, the boss very well, and I got lucky because he, yeah. he uh, his name is Raul Isaguirre, and he is an extraordinary man. I learned a lot from him, too. And that kind of set the tone for me that I was never going to – I was always going to make an effort to choose, and then I was choose people with integrity. That, that I think, is the most important quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
uh, I worked for Raul, I worked for Barack Obama, and I now work for Anne-Marie Slaughter. And um, I am really, really fortunate on all of those fronts. Anne-Marie Slaughter, who did have a long stint in the State Department under Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, now uh, uh, running uh, the, this particular think tank. What what did you learn from Anne-Marie? Uh, you know, that it is possible to be um, tough and exacting and also operate with grace and humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is somebody who is really lovely to be around, is thoughtful and considerate, and is really about building a workplace where with high standards, but also with... Um, the flexibility to allow people to have lives, yep. which is a lesson that she learned from her State Department years in particular, and which she is really interested in. Um, she's interested in policy that makes it possible. So policy around caregiving, around flexibility, workplace flexibility, um, around you know leave policies. Um, she believes in that for for men and women, importantly. Um, and that she wants to build a workplace where you can do excellent work but be whole people, which is tremendously important and Great. far too rare. Great. Last question along the same vein. I'm going to hit you with a final topic here. You're at a point in life now where that's beginning to reverse, and you probably have mentored a few people along the way. Mm-hmm. So what's the, in your own experience, what does the art of mentoring require on, on your part? I think it requires creating safe spaces for people. Uh, I, I went out of my way, and this is actually something I learned from Valerie Jarrett, who is a colleague of mine in the White House and who is very good at this. Creating a space where people feel comfortable to come and raise difficult things um, and coaching them through difficult things. It, it, the White House is a place where it can be hard. And there are lots of workplaces that are like this, where it can be hard to raise tough issues and hard to express vulnerability, right? Everybody's supposed mm-hmm. to be at the top of their game all the time. And it turns out we're all human beings who struggle with things. So creating a safe space for a colleague to come in, especially a younger colleague, to come in and say, you know what, I'm really struggling with this. Can you help me? Is really, really important. Cecilia, this has been great. I'm going to Take the final couple of minutes to reference your own past. You are the daughter of immigrants mm-hmm. uh, from Bolivia originally, and uh, obviously you've been in this country, I think, almost your entire life. I was now, born here. You were born My here. parents are immigrants. Yeah, yes, yeah. your parents came. And as you think about this issue that defines part of what you're doing in your in your foundation, which is globalization and its discontents, give us a couple of thoughts on on. Immigration, immigration reform, barriers to entry, yeah, and all that's entailed in the, in the above. It' very we're, contentious. I realize. Indeed, we're a nation of immigrants and a nation of laws, and it is entirely possible to harmonize those things. Mm-hmm. Um, we badly, badly need an immigration reform. I've been working on the same one for about twenty years, and uh, we have political challenges, not substantive challenges, which keep it from going forward. But this is something that is. Um, makes us who we are as a nation. We have the capacity to get it right, and we choose uh, not to, which is uh, has tragic consequences right now, mm-hmm. not just for immigrants themselves, but for us as a nation and for our economy. Cecilia, uh, maybe a signature on the value of your immigration to this country, the MacArthur Foundation, every year names people, uh, identifies people for an award that, the press will call the Genius Award. Yes. Uh, very few are selected in any given year, but the award does go to people like yourself, as it did, I think, back in the year 2000, yeah. for distinguished service and great promise. So what was it like to receive that award, and how has that affected your life? It's a completely crazy thing, because you don't know that you're under consideration. You get a phone call, and they drop this enormous honor on you, and actually expect nothing in return. Which So it's amazing. It's amazing. A huge honor. And um, the other thing that happens is that people, in my case, people who didn't take me seriously as a Latina advocate in a Latino organization, which I was at the National Council of La Raza at the time, suddenly took me seriously. And I hadn't changed. But suddenly I was credible in settings, including university settings, which wouldn't have taken me seriously before. Um, so that I thought I found that very interesting. Hmm. And I, it made me recognize that it was important to use the opportunity and the honor to um, to make sure that 
my voice was heard, but that, but also to make sure that when my voice was heard, it was sort of a quality product. You, you know, you, um, you want to use that opportunity for for good and for good in ways that will affect others, and that's what I've tried to do. Yep, yep. Let's move the clock ahead another five or ten years. What do you have in your crystal ball at the moment? You know, technology is changing the world with incredible speed. It's changing. It's already changed the way that we live our lives, and it will change the way that we that we work. It will change the way my daughters work. And um, there is a lot that we need to do to make sure that we're ready and to make sure that the impacts are equitable. And and uh, so I, I think about that a lot. It's built into the work that I'm doing at New America. I, I'm lucky to be at an organization that's kind of focused on how we adapt mm-hmm. to the way technology affects our lives. We're in an important moment. We're in an, a moment that's as important as the uh, and transformative as the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we need to be aware of that, and we need to make sure that we are working to, to make sure that – I think of it in terms of inequality in this country and around the world. We need to be using these tools to decrease it and make uh, rather than waiting for it to increase it and then doing something yep. about it later. You know, not that these are opposed – but do you worry more about technology or globalization? I don't. You don't necessarily have to worry about either one. They are they are facts. The question is, how do we harness these trends in our world to accomplish what we need to for an equitable society, for an equitable planet, for and for one that we can preserve and that our that generations beyond us will be able to live on. And maybe to sum it up, it's a calling to do that now because uh, the the discontents from globalization and some of the great affirmative impact of technologies and some of the negative impacts are coming into much clearer focus at the present. Good time to get onto that. Thank you for being on that. Thank you for your time in the White House on behalf of the country. Thank you. So, Cecilia, great uh, great to have you actually here in the studio. Wonderful to talk with you. Best wishes that all the, for all that lies ahead. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. If you've got questions about today's program, you can contact us. We're at Business Radio, one word, at SiriusXM.com. Bringing this to a close, I want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and today's sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'm Mike Yusim, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.